0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest is the match director for the Bluegrass Low Cap Classic and the Kentucky State match. He's even directed the Area 5 match. And In a twist of fate, he's also decided to throw his hat in the ring for Area 5 director. So if you would, Join me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Leif Kunkel. How you doing, Dave? Good. Uh, Welcome to the show. If you would, take a moment and introduce yourself.
1: Uh, My name is Leif Kunkel. I live in central Kentucky, Uh, was Lexington, now a little bit south of there as of earlier this year. I am the USPSA match director at Bluegrass Sportsman's League in Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, I've been shooting USPSA since early 2018, I believe it was March, 2018, um, got started up in Northern West Virginia where we were living at the time. And then shortly thereafter, uh, my wife and I moved down to central Kentucky and, uh, kind of jumped in with both feet at a uh, BGSL and that's bluegrass sportsman's league. And, um, kind of just been chugging away at that ever since became a local match director pretty quickly. Uh, jumped into major match directing pretty quickly. Um, I guess I have a hard time saying no to things and just like being part of making things happen.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, uh, man, you're so <laughs> that was so loaded when you said I can't say no. I'm like so many things running through my head. Not not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> All right, so Leif, I know you've listened to the show. So mm-hmm. you know that I like to ambush the guests right up front with all the hard questions the first okay. time they're on. And that's what I'm going to do with you now.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> Number one, favorite movie.
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. Maybe Boondock Saints, Ooh, the first one. Never one. saw the okay. second one because I heard it was terrible and it would ruin the first one, but that I might be one of my too favorites. bad,
0: but I never saw it. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> fair enough. All right, so I have learned that we seemed, the society seems to be drifting away from books. Yes. Um, I, I think YouTube might have something to do with that. I don't know, and Netflix and everything else. But if you read, or if you've ever read a book, <laughs> what's your favorite? Um,
1: that's a tough one. I honestly don't read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of audiobooks at this point. Um probably I did listen to the audiobook and read Unbreakable. That was pretty good. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen that one about huh, What's um, that? That is about a uh a World War 2 a member of a World War 2 bomber crew in the Pacific Theater that got shot down and uh ended up in a Japanese prison camp. And he was also an Olympic. We made
0: a movie about that, they right? They did.
1: They made a movie yeah, also. Okay. Yeah.
0: How was the audiobook, the audio version of that?
1: The audiobook was good. Okay. It, the audiobook's better than the movie, for sure.
0: Oh, they go into okay. a lot
1: more detail in
0: the audiobook. Right. I believe that. It's always a lot easier.
1: Yeah. It's
0: hard to get. It's hard, it's hard to, I guess, if you would put that much detail in the movie. It'd be a three to four hour movie. Oh, Nobody absolutely. Wants to sit through that. Yeah. So. All right. If you're into superheroes, who's your favorite superhero? If not, your favorite historical figure.
1: I'm not into superheroes. Um, favorite historical figure would probably be... Uh, this is kind of a niche thing, but probably Chuck Yeager. If you would consider him really? a historical figure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Broke the sound yeah. barrier. Yep. Okay. Is it for what he did in yeah. flight?
1: Yeah, I've, I've been kind of an aviation guy since I was a little kid, so that stuff has always fascinated oh. me. The history, of the progression.
0: Pilot's license?
1: Uh, not yet. Going to be pursuing not that. Not yet. Going to be pursuing oh. that before too long. It's just something I keep putting off and got to just bite the bolt and do it.
0: And the longer you wait, the more expensive it gets.
1: Oh, it's getting very expensive now. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Okay. Favorite gun and favorite caliber—they don't have to be married together just because your favorite gun might be a nineteen eleven. Right. Y- your favorite caliber could be twenty-two.
1: Okay. Um. Just of all time.
0: Mm-hmm. It could be something you've owned or something you've always been enamored with.
1: Right. Um, I do have an M1 Garand that's very cool. I've shot some uh, NRA-style Garand matches with that in the past. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I I come from a precision rifle background before I started shooting handgun. So um, I've always been uh, very into rifle stuff.
0: We share a lot in common.
1: I, I see you've got a stick yes. from Camp Perry up there.
0: Uh, actually, it was Quantico, 1,000 okay. yard line. But yeah, that's um national match, okay. a national match gun, high power. Nice. Yep. Okay. Uh, wait, what? So, what caliber?
1: Um, well, that's 30 six, but I w- wouldn't say that's my favorite caliber necessarily. Um, right. I built a PRS rifle, I guess, two years ago now in 6GT, and that's been a lot of fun. So I don't know if I'd call it my favorite caliber. I don't know if I have one favorite caliber.
0: Okay. All right. So is 6GT your favorite rifle caliber?
1: Right now it is. Yeah.
0: Okay. What about pistol caliber? What's your favorite pistol caliber? Um,
1: Probably just 9mm, just because of the versatility of it. I shoot yeah, a lot of for, I shoot a lot of forty um, because it has a very niche place in our sport. Other than that, it's not really viable. Um, I don't shoot much forty five, just because I don't want to set up and load for three different calibers in that kind of volume. Nine and forties enough.
0: I totally get it. Yeah, nine's like the three hundred eight of pistols. Right. Yeah, just the workhorse of the of yeah. that style of firearm. Yep. I want to go back for a second. Why six GT? And would you, I know you said it's your favorite, but would you, with seven PRC and others out there now, would you still choose the same caliber?
1: I think right now for the purpose of PRS, yes, I would choose the same caliber. Um, And I have not gone down the rabbit hole very deeply in PRS, just kind of scratched the surface. I don't have time to, dive into it too far right now. Um, but the six millimeter calibers seem to be King over there. Um, it's just, it's very flat trajectory. Uh, it is low recoil, easy to, to see your impacts cause you're not fighting a bunch of recoil. Um, very easy to load for it's very easy to, uh, get low SDs on six GT.
0: Hmm. Okay. I mean I've I not shot any PRS. I have shot um NRA CMP high power stuff. Um I, I got a six five creed because I was gonna get into PRS, which I think I would either do six five again or um seven PRC at mm-hmm. this point. But I would also but I'm also the type that my rifle, while it may be a PRS rifle, would also be a rifle that I took hunting or, right. you know, out west or wherever. That's going to, it might be used for this, but it's also for right. this. Because, like, like I've shot my carry gun in carry optics, both USPSA and IDPA, and still challenge. And I found that, um, shoot, what is that? I'm trying to think of that one. It's It's stage five of... Uh, steel Challenge. It's I can't think of the name of it, but it's the one with all the big pieces of steel. Right. Super, smoke super fast. The smoke and hope. There you go. Yep. It's only a tenth of a second slower than my regular competition gun. Yeah. So, I believe. Yeah. That. So I try I, I try to get stuff that works for both. Right. You know, so I can use it for whatever. All right. Now, the last question. I always try to personalized to the guest and you're wearing a West Virginia shirt. Mm -hmm. As I understand, you went to West Virginia university. I did favorite memory from West Virginia university.
1: Um, probably NCAA rifle championships, my senior year. Um, probably shooting in the finals of NCAA rifle championships. I finished fourth place in small bore that year. Um, that was a pretty, uh, pretty good memory for sure. That was at West Point in New York. Um, and that was just a lot of work that culminated in a pretty good finish overall in that year. And it was a good way to kind of finish my college shooting career.
0: That's, that's excellent. And I follow, you you know, Mary Tucker, who she is? Yeah. Yep. I follow her and I've tried several times getting her on the show. Yeah. But my God, that woman, yeah, I she, swear she shoots every weekend somewhere.
1: Oh, yeah. She just won a gold medal, I think, at Pan American um, yeah. in the last couple of days. Yeah, she's been on a tear recently.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, that whole West Virginia team, like I watched the NCAA championships. Um, very interesting. There are some oh, yeah. very good shooters out there, but but I I, I like how they – stream it on the internet you can get on you can see it you can see the scores you got everything going on um but it so i know we're that we're going to be talking about pistol stuff here shortly but i want to i want to talk about this first so how did you get on the west virginia team
1: Um, I started shooting this style of three-position rifle in high school. I guess it was my early my junior year of high school, which didn't leave a lot of time to pursue the college route. Um, But I actually was recruited by West Virginia University. I was recruited by a couple different schools. Um, WVU was one of them. Xavier in Cincinnati was another one. Um, West Point was another one. They didn't recruit me that hard, but I went on recruiting trips to – Um, all of them and West Virginia university just kind of clicked for me and that's where I chose to go.
0: Okay. Now, were you in New Jersey at the time?
1: I was. Yes. Yeah. I was, so New
0: Jersey had a rifle team.
1: Um, not in a high school or anything like that. They were, there's junior clubs kind of scattered around. So I started at a club, not too far from my house. And I actually started shooting trap on Friday evenings. And, um, I as far as I remember, it started getting cold in the fall, and trap wasn't too fun in in the cold weather outside. <laughs> so right next to next to the trap field, there was an indoor um fifty foot pistol range where on Friday nights they shot uh twenty two three position junior league, and I got wrapped up in that and kind of dove head first into that, ended up switching to a different club that had more of a, a specialized bunch of coaches that it was kind of a feeder program for a couple different universities. Um, WVU was one of them. Xavier was one of them. Some of the people that kind of went through there ended up going to West point as well. Um, so I started, my dad and I started commuting three times the distance twice a week to go to that club to Mm. advance my skills as fast as possible in an attempt to get recruited.
0: seems like it worked. Good plan. Yep. Okay. Um, so full ride or partial or?
1: Partial. Um, it's very, very hard okay. to get a full ride and rifle. Um, the, the scholarship system in division one athletics, there's a cap on the number of scholarships, um, a sport is allowed to have. So rifle is 3.2 full scholarships is the maximum they're allowed to have divvied up amongst however big their team is, however the coach determines. Where when you go to a football team, you have like 50 or 60 full scholarships that get divvied up. But that's understandable in a way. Rifle's not a revenue sport. The university's not really gaining anything off of it other than uh, credibility for national championships won or something like that. But they're not making money off of it. So I ended up, I think, with 40% is what I had
0: okay did you have any um did you have any sponsors while you were shooting
1: no you weren't allowed
0: to well i I mean go ahead
1: um that might have changed now that ncaa has allowed athletes to to be monetized in some way but we were not allowed to accept anything from anybody we couldn't even accept rides from rifle team supporters or anything like that it was very
0: strict Wow. And I was just even wondering like the jackets, you know?
1: Oh, we, we would get warm ups once a year and stuff like that. And they would pay for ammo and the university would, we had a budget, an operational budget, but no sponsorships for individual people or no corporate sponsorships for the team. Like WVU had a Nike contract. So everything we wore had to be Nike or you would get in trouble and it all had to be supplied by the university.
0: Because we've we've shot some similar stuff, mm-hmm. um, how do you like the leather coats? Or were yours leather?
1: Um, the ones I started out with were a combination of leather and canvas. And they okay. evolved over the time that I was in college to the point where they were 100% synthetic. And they've even evolved further beyond that um so they're probably a slightly different than the coats that you wore um like we weren't allowed to have tensioning (laughs) straps um or buckles you can't cinch anything down so we had just had buttons going down the front and they had overlap gauges where they would hook them on the button and then go overlap the coat and you had to have a minimum amount of overlap to make sure your coat wasn't too tight and then they had to pass thickness tests and all kinds of different things
0: Thickness Mm. tests.
1: Yes. Thickness tests. Wow. And and that became problematic um, depending on what part of the country you lived in, especially when they went to full synthetic, it wasn't as much of an issue because they didn't absorb moisture like canvas did. But I lived in New Jersey and then I would go to Colorado Springs to the Olympic Training Center for Junior Olympics and I would not pass thickness because I lived in a humid climate and the canvas would absorb moisture and it would be too thick and they understood that, they would ask you where you were from and then say, go beat on this part of your coat to get it thinner and then we'll check it again. But that was oh, kind of wow. something they knew was an issue.
0: Okay. Well, at, at least they were, you know, they helped you out, you know, to try to get down to where yeah, you needed Yeah, at to that lead. level. So, if
1: you were shooting a World right. Cup or the Olympics, they would not give you that, that leeway. You had to pass.
0: Right. But, but you're probably making sure you're passing before you yeah. get there. So I yeah. get it. Okay. So what did you wear under your coat then? Um, there's
1: a couple different thicknesses of shooting sweaters that I would wear, but essentially it was just one zip up sweater. That wasn't much thicker than this that I have on right now. And everything was kind of form fitting because you didn't want it bunching up and creating pressure points, which, could transmit a pulse or create a pulse where there, you didn't want one um, kind of right. the same thing under the pants. Um, you either just wore mesh shorts or like a, a Lycra layer underneath the pants um, to keep everything from bunching up and keep it consistent. The biggest thing was consistent. Every time you put everything on, it fit the same. And
0: that's the whole thing about rifle shooting. Yep. That I, I think that, would probably surprise a lot of pistol shooters is it's, it's way more about everything has to be, and I don't just mean the shooting part, but everything has to be consistent. Yep. We used to wear, I don't know, those coats were probably 30, 35 pounds. They had the cinch buckles on them, but we would also, um, we were issued a long sleeve sweatshirt and a short sleeve sweatshirt so you put the long one on first the mm-hmm. short sleeve over top then the coat in july in virginia mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and it would get hot is if you ever see me on the range in the summer even shooting pistol now i wear a headband right across yeah. my forehead because too many times I was shooting rifle and I'd get sweat coming down my shooting glasses mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be able to see, cause it screws everything up. So yep. even now, practical pistol shooting, I wear a sweat band in the summer to keep all oh, yeah. of the sweat out of my eyes, off my glasses. So some things carry over. Oh yeah. Well, that's cool, man. That's, that's pretty awesome. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet it's a lot of work too though. Oh yeah. So, but yeah, it's, do you ever, um, do you ever have any triggers and you can smell the coat and everything?
1: Um, occasionally something will, something will remind me of a sensory thing from back then. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting thing. It's kind of like if you've ever played, um, football too, you know, that locker room helmet, sometimes that helmet smell, I'll get that too. It's like, whoa, that's weird. Yeah. (laughs) But all right, so you, so it sounds like you basically grew up shooting rifle and that was it.
1: Pretty much, yeah. I didn't do anything with handgun until um, probably after college, a good ways after college. And not too I long did, before I started shooting USPSA.
0: And that was early 2018.
1: 2018. I probably started shooting a little bit of IDPA and... 2015 or 16 at the range I became a member of in Northern West Virginia. Um, but not a whole lot, never any major matches, just some locals that the club had put on and, uh, through one of the guys that I was shooting IDPA with is how I became introduced to USPSA in 2018.
0: So all those years of rifle shooting, why, when you moved to Kentucky, did you go, I'm going to shoot pistol?
1: Well, I started Pistol in in West Virginia uh, just before I moved to Kentucky. And um, I guess Rifle kind of uh, brought me into being curious about 3-Gun because 3-Gun was really big at the Mm -hmm. time. And to shoot 3-Gun, you needed to learn how to shoot a Pistol also. Um, And then 3-Gun started kind of dying off. The Pistol sports were pretty prominent. Um, So, And Pistol was just a good change of pace from rifle. Um, I guess when I shot rifle so much through college, I don't want to say I got burnt out on it, but I wanted a different challenge. I guess we were shooting probably four to five hours a day, five to six days a week in college. And it, it just got to be a lot. And I wanted to shoot mm-hmm. something where you were getting more visual feedback from what you were doing and it wasn't as much well it's all a mind game but precision rifle shooting is like mind numbing and can be very frustrating
0: yeah it, but it, again there's with the consistency there's so much more that you have to deal with it yeah. is yeah it, it it's very mentally taxing
1: it is yeah, it's not very physically taxing, but when you get done with a 60-minute string of fire, which is only 60 rounds, you're you're wiped, and it's just from yes. focus, just from concentration.
0: Yeah, absolutely, it, yeah. Now, all right, I got a question. I have another question here coming up in yeah. a few minutes when we get there, but... Um, so did you... I know you were saying three gun, did any of that, did you, um, I know some people will, their first foray into pistol will be, they got a gun for self-defense, you know, concealed carry purposes. And they're like, Oh, I need to train and get better with this. Was your strictly because you had an, an interest in three gun or was this also something you were looking at?
1: There, there was self-defense mixed in there as well. I don't remember the exact, uh, time frame when I got my concealed carry permit in West Virginia versus it was a little bit after I started shooting a little bit of competitive handgun when I got my concealed carry permit. Um, So I probably backwards of the majority of people that get their concealed carry permit. I would say most people go ahead and get their concealed carry permit and then hopefully go and seek out further training beyond that. And competitive shooting is by far the best the best avenue for that, in my opinion.
0: I, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. So you you shot a few IDPA matches. Someone introduced you to USPSA, and was it like most people? It was smitten immi- immediately, or oh yeah? Did I have to grow? <laughs> okay. Oh no! I,
1: I wanted to keep doing it <laughs> immediately. <laughs>
0: So what did you, your first match, what mm-hmm. were you shooting and what division were you in?
1: It's actually kind of funny. I was shooting a, <laughs> uh, a Glock 34 that I built up for three gun that was not limited. It was not a legal in production and all the guys I was shooting with were shooting production. So my first ever match was in L10. So I could stage plan with those guys, but shoot the gun that I had. So that's like one of the only L 10 classifiers I still have on my classification record was my first match (laughs) that I ever shot. And then after that- You were like
0: the 1% of limited 10 shooters that year. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah, there might've been two, yeah, I don't know. Um, And then before the second match, I bought a shadow two, and I'm actually still shooting that same shadow two. It's my backup production gun now.
0: What's your primary?
1: Another shadow two. A newer one. This one's just in the rotation to be a backup
0: gun. Gotcha. So that's what you're shooting now, Shadow 2s and production.
1: Um, I shoot too many things. I still shoot (laughs) production. Still my favorite. Um, Right now, I'm shooting single stack. I've been shooting single stack pretty much the second half of this year and going to be shooting it through Ipsic Nationals in a couple weeks. Um, Mm. After Ipsic Nationals, I'm going to go back to production um, through sometime in the spring. Um, I'm going to shoot production at the Caribbean open in Puerto Rico in February. Um, and then at some point I'll switch back to CO before CO Nats, and then back to either production or single stack, probably single stack before handgun nationals in next fall.
0: All right. Are you looking to go to world shoot in single stack?
1: That's a very, uh lofty goal for me. Um, I'm, I'm going through the process of shooting all the qualifier matches in single stack, but there's a pretty, uh, pretty deep field of guys that are probably going to comprise that team.
0: Okay. So how did you like shooting single stack at nationals?
1: Um, it was very challenging.
0: Uh, It was a very challenging
1: match. Um, and I shot major, so I saw it eight rounds um it was definitely the hardest match I've ever shot I'm probably not going to say anything that you haven't heard other people say before about that match um there there was a lot of uh I have a hard time believing it wasn't tweaked a little bit to challenge the limited optics the limited guys optics. a little bit more mm-hmm. um um I talked to, to some people that, said, well, the stages were designed prior to the change. And I believe that, but the stages weren't put on the ground prior to the change. There's a lot of things you can tweak on the ground to make shots tighter and make shots longer. And, um, right at, at at the end of the day, it accomplished the objective of having all the competitors shoot the same match and test everybody's skills against each other. There was some elements that kind of got a little worn out to me, like, all the double stack targets with no shoot separators everywhere. Um, There was a lot of stages I I haven't gone through and counted, but it felt like at least a third of the stages were the first position was some kind of significant lean to a no shoot, double stack target. And then you'd go to the next stage and it was like, okay, first position is a no shoot uh, significantly in the other direction to a double stack, no shoot target. And then there's the one stage that's entirely comprised of double stack, stack, no shoot targets. I walked away from that match. I'm like, I'm not putting another double stack, no shoot target in any one of my majors again (laughs) after this, I've had enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're still in your nightmares.
1: (laughs) It was just too much. It was just, just wore concept out a little bit.
0: And I, you know, when I had Jay on and he said, (laughs) <laughs> Michael Poggi was like, this would be a great match if they moved the targets five to six yards closer. Yeah, well, That's saying something.
1: Yeah. And I understand why they partialed a lot of the targets. Like they had no, they had hardcover partials that were just like the left or right third of a target was cover. but they did it in spots where there was a wall obstructing the view of the target and they were just trying to keep people off the wall from shooting the wall up. But they could have also moved the target out a little bit and just gave you a full target on a lean at 20 yards instead of two thirds of an ipsic target on a lean at 20 yards would have accomplished kind of the same thing, but
0: yeah, you're that, already using a different, more difficult target and yeah, you're adding difficulty on top of difficulty.
1: Yeah. That's where major power factor had an advantage in single stack because you could hold way further off of that line and you wouldn't be penalized as much for Charlie's. You still don't want to shoot deltas, but that, that was, those were difficult challenges to kind of cherry pick alphas with a minor gun at those ranges. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, do you think, um, do you ever think if I'd had, if I shot major, I mean, minor And had those two extra rounds, do you think that would have helped at all?
1: Maybe on one or two stages, but not overall. Like the stage 18 that everyone's talking about with all the far mini poppers, I I would have liked to have 10 rounds in the gun for that. But there weren't many stages where I felt it was advantageous.
0: Okay. Now you have shot, um, carry optics, so Mm -hmm. you still prefer iron sights?
1: I do. Um, I, I prefer the, well, I feel like I have a lot more left to accomplish with iron sights before I walk away from them. I don't feel like I've gotten to the point that I want to get to with iron sights at this point. And a lot of people are jumping ship and not many people are shooting irons anymore, but I still feel like there's a lot more for me to learn there. And bouncing back and forth between a dot and irons is not very intuitive for me. And it definitely sets me back when I go back to iron sights. So I'm just going to primarily stick with iron sights for at least the next couple of years. See how things shake out.
0: Okay. And by the time this airs, we will have already done the um, episode where we talk about participation numbers and all of that. But I was just looking at them. I'm about to send them out to everybody. But if you start from May 1st of this year, And just include, you know, your area matches and your other level twos and whatnot. 90% participation is optics. Right. Only 10% are iron. So, yeah, I mean, it's like literally everybody's moving away from irons.
1: Right. And it's crazy. That's only happened in the last, the big swings only happened in the last three years.
0: I started looking
1: at some numbers um, in preparation for that other podcast we're talking about. And just going back to the first major I was the match director for, which was the 2020 Kentucky Section Championship. And production was the largest division at that match in 2020. Wow.
0: That's crazy.
1: That's a it, a lot in three years.
0: Yeah. I even I even did a graph and it's like carry optics literally just goes, whoo. Yep.
1: Like, yep.
0: like an SR-71 taken off. You know, it gets yep. to the end of the runway, gets its wheels up and whoo, straight up in the air.
1: Yep. It's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of new shooters that show up at my local matches um, that have never shot iron sights before. They just I believe started it. off with a dot and they don't know anything else.
0: Now, so let me ask you this since you are a bigger iron sight shooter than Optic, I've heard people say that shooting iron sights, shooting optics, going back to iron sights, you pick up a more of what your gun is doing because of what you saw while shooting an optic. Did, is that, is that the same for you? It or is. No? It
1: is. Um, yeah. If, if you're paying attention to the correct things when you're shooting a dot, there's a lot to learn from shooting a dot that does carry over to irons. Um, I have some, I don't want to say they're unique issues to me because maybe they're not. And maybe it's just something that I haven't put enough time into to work through, but I don't, I'm not able to shoot um, extremely target focused with irons because I don't have a strong, uh, eye dominance left to right. It'll actually move back and forth depending on it kind of takes the path of least resistance. Like if I'm on a lean or something, sometimes my dominance will shift to my left eye and I'm still shooting target focused and seeing the fiber, but it's no longer aligned at all with the rear sight and I don't see the rear sight. So, Hmm. and I think this goes back to rifle. I really think it's from shooting so many hundreds of thousands of rounds in rifle with my left eye occluded. I really think that's what it was. Um,
0: Okay. Maybe
1: maybe that's not it, but... um, So I have to shoot a little bit front sight focused with irons, um, and I have to partially occlude my left eye Uh, to keep the dominance force to my right eye. I don't hard squint it, but just a little bit to make sure the dominance stays on my right eye so I I see what I need to see. But when I shoot a dot, I don't have to do that. I shoot both eyes completely open, target focus as much as I possibly can, and it's not an issue because you don't have the sight alignment component to deal with. You're just the dot and the target.
0: Yeah, it's literally just a dot target alignment. Yeah. So, yeah, I get that. Well, and that, that's something else I wanted to ask you about was, um, now I did it, well, I did it for longer, uh, in my life shooting rifle and irons and all that. Cause I didn't get into this sport till I was in my fifties, but how did you find the transition from slow, methodical, take your time, every shot's gotta be very precise to, okay, now I can run and gun and I don't, Mm I have, I have this area to hit versus this area to hit. Right. Was that, how was that transition? Um, I don't think the speed portion was that bad.
1: I started picking up speed fairly quickly. Um, my trigger control was crap though. And it, that seems counterintuitive, but when you're shooting rifle, the rifles I was shooting were 20 pounds. They had a 50 gram trigger. So you're subconsciously kind of slapping the trigger when you're shooting standing, especially, and you don't have as still of a hold. Um, But just kind of that, that subconscious jerk did not translate well to pistol. Like I had to learn to really press the trigger straight with a handgun. And it took me a long time to get rid of a flinch that I had when I first started. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know why I wasn't able to just kind of separate the two or why so many bad habits that are masked by the heavy rifle and the light trigger seemed to surface when I started shooting handgun. Uh, but they definitely did. And it was a challenge to overcome.
0: So you didn't have a you didn't like I had a problem and and some people will know the term. I know you will but i had an issue when i first started where and I, i'm still still kind of breaking out of it but where i would dress up the sights yeah overconfirm yeah yeah overconfirm in pistol yeah. and rifle it's dress it up right but you don't you didn't have any of that
1: i think i might have overcompensated the other way like where i turned that part of my brain off and said you don't have to do that so just go faster. And it just went too far the other way. And I had to reel it back. Like I was just shooting at Brown a lot starting out (laughs) and (laughs) had to- The whole
0: target is your target. It was like all of a sudden I had all
1: this freedom and I didn't know what to do with it. And then I had to like relearn a different kind of discipline.
0: Uh, All of a sudden George Michael Freedom just started coming to my (laughs) head. Oh, that's funny. Well, that's good. I I
1: totally know what you you mean about dressing up sight pictures and rifle with iron <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have to
0: yeah you do yeah. and i have found for like for the first couple of years that's what i would do it's like right. oh it's not exactly in the middle hold on right <laughs> so that were, was were the you, hardest thing for me
1: were you shooting a, um aperture sites were you shooting like post and peep
0: post you, and peep
1: okay so it was a little different for you in terms of like sight. Um, dimension proportions versus the target we were shooting round apertures you had a front a front aperture sight a rear aperture sight and a round target so it was all concentric circles and you would experiment with what size front aperture you would use for how much white you saw around the black on the target and i always found that if you went a little bit bigger and had a little bit more gap, you stopped second guessing as much because it's easier to center a small thing in a big thing without questioning right. it than to sh- center a big thing in a slightly bigger thing without questioning yeah. it. Cause then you're just like, Oh, it's a little off. It's a little off. It's a little off. And and that yeah. kind of translates over to irons with shooting skinnier front sights. You're not questioning it as much because it's, it looks like it's, it is appropriate for what you need to be doing. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. I used a, a front sight post and a peep rear sight, but even for like in that picture, I mean, I put the, I, I aligned my, I set my, um, dope Mm -hmm. for the front sight, the blade, the very top of the blade. So the bullseye would sit literally, Right on top of the post. You call that lollipoping. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I would lollipop it. That's exactly how I did. So even yeah. at a thousand yards, it was like I knew exactly where that shot was going every single time. Right. So it's like shot calling and pistol. I was like, this is simple. Right. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? I can show you a whole dad. I can show you data books full of <laughs> shot calling. Right. <laughs> Holy cow. All right. So before we go any further into any deeper into pistol, I want to do one more thing about rifle and then we'll, we'll, we'll get all the, for the listeners, we'll get the boring rifle stuff out now. And then we'll do the, the, all the pistol <laughs> stuff. Um, NRL, mm-hmm. you, you still shooting NRL?
1: I'm doing a little bit of NRL. Um, just local okay. matches, no majors. I don't have time for that, but it is, uh, <laughs> it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. There's probably, I don't know, there's a good bit of stuff that carries over from three position shooting, but it is a totally different stuff, set of stuff to learn. And it's, it's been fun.
0: And that's what I want to ask you about because small bore, you're indoor, you're at close ranges, there's no wind, there's really no ballistics that you have to really take into consideration.
1: Yeah, not in NCAA, but when you got to right. like Camp Perry or, or uh, USA Shooting Nationals, wind is absolutely a factor. Okay. And the elements are a factor. Yeah.
0: Okay. So the tra- So then when you got into NRL 22, you'd already been introduced to some of that. But I mean, NRL 22 takes it to the extreme.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We We just, my club had a NRL practice day um, just this past Sunday, and it was really windy and raining and we're shooting... There's people that shoot further than this, but we're shooting out to 300 yards, 325 yards. And it's insane with a 22. what little variations in wind do at 300 yards. Yeah. A lot.
0: That's when I first heard NRL 22. I'm like, oh, we shoot out to 400 yards. The first thing I said was bull S. Yeah. Bull S you do. <laughs> that bullet's like. Yeah. Whoosh, whoosh. Yep. My God. It's like a person going out in a, you know, 120 mile an hour hurricane and trying to stand still, you know, not happening. Nope. So I was like, holy cow, that's challenging.
1: Yeah. All the new people that show that show up and we tell them we're shooting at 300 yards, they don't believe it. And then you just have to show them like it's, you just got to know your data. You got to know the wind at 300 yards. Spin drift comes into, into play with a 22 quite a bit. Um, but it's definitely doable. It's not bench rest accuracy by any means, but oh, no. y- you can hold an 8-inch plate no problem at 300 yards.
0: So inside a 3 MOA. All right. Yeah. Okay.
1: I'm sure you could do better than that. I'm sure there's guys that do better than that. but
0: <clears throat> Right. It's going to have a lot to do with the ammo and the gun, though, too. Yeah. So that's going to play a lot into it. Now, um, I told someone I wish they would. I wish there was a league that allowed the 17 caliber because that would be a big difference. Ballistic, oh my yeah. God. That would be amazing. I was like, yeah. you could actually do precision rifle 17 caliber out to two, 300 yards. Cause right. That bullet is kicking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that yeah. would do to steel to the same steel. We're shooting 22s at, but yeah, I I'm don't sure AR 500 either. would be fine. Like at three hundred, yeah. we're shooting we're shooting much thinner mild steel just so you can hear it ring and you can see it move. We're not shooting the heavier AR five hundred plates that we shoot inside of a hundred because they just don't move at three hundred. They're not hitting hard enough.
0: Well, and I don't think the seventeen would either, though. I don't I just know think too it, much about
1: the energy of yeah,
0: I mean it it's it's it it surpasses all the ballistics surpass. The twenty-two at about seventy-five yards, um, but I look at uh, I look at small game hunting limit about one hundred and fifty yards with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So once you get beyond that, it's dropping off pretty significantly. Um, still better than the twenty-two, but but again, it's not it's not going to penetrate any type of steel. Right. So I just think it's at one hundred and fifty yards and in. So, like, instead of hundred yards, you're shooting heavier still. It's out to 150. You're shooting right. that heavier still, and then beyond that, you should be fine. But yeah, I've always wished they would allow 17, and I'd be like, I'd be, I'd be in with a swiftness. Yeah. All right. So now going back. So you, yeah, I guess your first match was March of 2018 in USPSA.
1: I believe so. Yeah.
0: Okay. And it should um, be because
1: I joined in 2018 and I remember vividly joining in the car on the way to the match.
0: <laughs> like on your phone?
1: Yeah. Somebody said the class fire okay. won't count unless you're a member. So I joined in the car on the way to the match.
0: Oh, wow. All right. 10 years earlier. I don't know if you could have.
1: No, <laughs> but it,
0: but, you, but there you go. You got to love technology now. How long after that first match did you direct your first match?
1: Um, I guess that would have been forget the date on it, March or April. Maybe maybe even June of twenty eight of twenty twenty. So Oh okay, that's so about two, two years. A little over two years. Okay. The first major match, first local match was probably only a year and a half at the most, maybe a year.
0: So sometime in 2019.
1: Yeah. Sometime in 2019 was probably my first local match that I was match director for.
0: That's pretty fast to go from first match to directing your first match to then a year later, directing a major match. How did you, how did you fill in those voids so rapidly?
1: Um, well, I'm sure. A lot of people have experienced this, but when I got to Kentucky and joined Bluegrass Sportsman's League, um, the match director at the time did not have any help setting up and, um, I, I always have been a person to show up early and try to help. Um, I showed up the day before, uh, the first match that I shot there, um, to help set up and I was trying to meet people. I had just moved to the area. I was still new to USPSA. I was trying to figure, figure out the landscape. And I was one of, I think, two people that showed up to help. And he, I think the match director t- director at the time joked around about making me co-match director at that, that first time I met him just cause he was surprised somebody showed up to help. Um, and then, uh, the match director, um, at that point had some life changes. I think he had his first kid and he had to back away mm. and I ended up becoming match director.
0: How much of a learning curve is there from first local match to first major match?
1: Um, a pretty big learning curve. Cause it, that all happened within the, the span of a year. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I've always paid very close attention um, to the matches I was putting on the ground at a local level, the matches I was shooting, um, other level ones, level twos, and just seeing what people did, what worked. Um, And I'm sure I made, well, I know I made some mistakes the first major match that I put on the ground, uh, primarily dealing with match flow and Uh, multiple stages in bays that didn't work well together, but it does not take me long to learn from a mistake. I'm pretty embarrassed if I make the same mistake twice. So, um, I don't know. I've always learned better by just throwing myself in and figuring it out in kind of a sink or swim kind of mode.
0: How much of, I can't say no played into this.
1: Um, it's hard to say at that point. I'm sure there was some, for sure. But uh, I'd say the I Can't Say No was more evident when I took on Area 5 in 2020. Um, because that was only six weeks after my section match that I was the match director for that I ran Area 5. Um, and that was like everybody knows the world was crazy the first half of 2020 with Mm -hmm. covid restrictions and um we were all trying to figure it out on the fly how we were even going to have matches with social distancing requirements it seems like so long ago now but it's only three years that we were having to go jump through all these crazy hoops keeping people separated even the optics of keeping people separated um and at the time Area 5 was supposed to be um, in Ohio at Briar Rabbit, and they had to cancel the match because of a lot of restrictions their local health department was putting on them. They just couldn't do it. Oh, wow. um, and it, it it caused some uh, some turmoil. I don't want to go too de- deep into that, but the, the match director for the match that w- where it was supposed to be originally got some very unjustified flack, um for can't having to cancel the match and the opportunity was posed to me to have to re to move area 5 to my club at the same dates and that's probably where one of the biggest cases of i can't say no popped in <laughs> because we had okay. just finished up <laughs> a pretty successful section match we had all the the walls built and the props up to shape the range was in good shape And I ended up taking on that area five match in 2020 with six weeks notice.
0: Now. Okay. So how, so your league, not club, I guess it's a club, but it's a club. Yeah. Bluegrass sportsman's league, the club there. Yeah. They just allowed you to have a section match there. And now you're asking them to do the area five match. How. Uh, Were they okay with that? I mean, was there much pushback?
1: They were very supportive. Um, The the biggest concern was all the COVID restrictions and the social distancing requirements and bringing attention to the club that might get us in trouble for something with a health department or something like that. But I I laid out a very strict set of guidelines that we were going to follow. I believe, 20 oh yeah in 2020 i was on the board of my main club at that point as well i was the pistol division representative on our board and um after i explained everything to them they were they were very supportive of it and it wasn't like major matches were a new thing at bluegrass sportsman's league um they had run battle in the bluegrass which was a very uh sought after low cap match for 10 years prior to that the first year i lived in kentucky was the last year of battle in the bluegrass so bgsl already had a good reputation for putting on solid major matches so it wasn't really something i had to sell as a new thing to the club more of a continuation okay. of what was what was going on previously
0: and you guys made it through area five without any hiccups in regards to covid and the health department and all that no
1: it all went really smoothly. Yeah. Okay. As far as I know, uh, it was a pretty well received area match that year, and um, it flowed really well. Everything ran on time. Um, got a lot of good feedback from it.
0: Okay. Now you've you. So when you say the section match, was that the Kentucky State?
1: Uh, yeah, that was the Kentucky section championship in twenty twenty. Okay.
0: Was there a state match that year or am I thinking there are two they, different they, things when they're they, really, they the get
1: called different things. They're really the same thing. The section match oh, okay. and the state match are the same thing.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Now, how did, was the bluegrass low cap already a thing or is that something you dreamt up and did?
1: No, um, I, I can't take credit for dreaming that up. Um, that was the battle in the bluegrass match that happened for 10 years ending in 2018 I believe was the last one um, the match directors for that match decided to retire that match at that point they wanted to retire the match retire the name um, kind of as their legacy going out and mm. um, there was still a bit of a an urge for that match people really w- liked the, the style of that match and um, wanted to see it come back And I decided to kind of do my, my version of it in, uh, this year in 2023 and see, uh, if low cap was still a viable thing.
0: So when you say the style of it, do you just mean low cap or was there an actual like flavor? Um, Um, it,
1: it being a low cap only match. So production, single stack L10 and revolver. Um, It was a single-day match, so staff would shoot on Friday, the main match would be Saturday, and then there would be a big awards dinner after the main match on Saturday that the majority of people Mm. stuck around for. So that's what people really wanted, was that kind of community feel of the match. Because it's very hard to accomplish that with a multi-day match, because you just can't get people to stick around for an awards ceremony, especially on Sunday night when they need to get home and get ready for work the next day. But right. when when you can do it as a uh, a single day match and have all the competitors shoot on one day and then they're the majority of them if they choose to be stick around for the dinner and then they have Sunday to travel home that's a totally different experience. So my version of it, um, it was never a half day format staff reset match in the past for Battle in the Bluegrass, but that's that was my big change as I made it um, half day format uh, staff reset. So I was able to get an AM flight through and then a PM flight. So I was able to get more shooters through in the same amount of time. And then the majority of them did stick around for the dinner.
0: Okay. So what would you say the percentage is of the folks who shoot in the AM that hang around for the dinner and the awards?
1: Um, A good amount, probably at least 75% of the morning sh- oh, shooters wow. stuck around like they okay. went into Lexington and had lunch or something afterwards and then made their way back to the club. And, um, yeah, then we all piled in the clubhouse and did a and dinner and then hung out for a while. Pretty, well, pretty, pretty good cool. number of people stuck around.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. solid. Uh, is there any consideration for doing something like that? High cap?
1: Um, maybe, um, For a state level match, it would be hard all divisions because you're not getting enough. You're kind of limit. I don't want to say diluting, it's not diluting, but um, you're not getting as many shooters through as would want to come through for an all divisions match. This was more of a specialty match, kind of limited capacity type thing.
0: Well, Um, and that's what I mean. Just a literally just a high cap match.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we could do something like that. Um, I don't know if it would it would have to replace the the state or the section match. I would think, um, but it's something to explore because people do like that format. They really do like the experience and the camaraderie that comes with that. It is totally different. It's not just like you shoot your last stage, you pile in the car, and you're gone, and you might have right. never got to see anybody.
0: Now, when you when you do finish up that match, so you've shot morning, you've shot afternoon, you have the dinner, are you breaking down after the afternoon, or is it like the local folks can come in on Sunday and shoot the match?
1: What we did for that match is uh, we opened it up as a local match that Sunday to all divisions. So anybody that doesn't shoot low cap or just shot low cap for that match and wanted to see how it, they would stack up with a high cap gun, on the same stages. Um, We let them do that for a reduced price on Sunday in exchange for helping tear down. So that worked out really well because we ended up with probably 50 or 60 people at the end of the day on Sunday to help tear down. That goes way faster.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, Yeah, that's not too bad.
1: No. Yeah, so I shot production um, in the low cap match and then shot CO on Sunday just to see how it stacked up and oh. that just that just kind of goes to prove this is kind of a stage design tangent that i don't believe stages should be thought of as division specific like for a special like a for a national championship that's only a certain number certain divisions i don't think the stage design should be influenced by the divisions i think interesting stages are interesting stages if you're paying attention to the right things Um, stage design has gotten a little bit sloppy in terms of the maximum number of rounds you can take from different positions and the ambiguity of the way the rule book reads in terms of, um, you can only require eight rounds from one position or view, but it's not quantified in any way. I think that's kind of detrimental to stage design because you can interpret position or view any way you want to, like you can have targets on a left berm from literally the same footing as targets on the right berm and consider that a different view, even though I think that's the same position. So you end up with 16 round shot without really moving your feet. And I don't think that's Mm. interesting for any division.
0: No, no, that wouldn't be until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.